Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm very excited to be joined by Greg Mittman. He is the Vilas Research and William Coleman Professor of History, Medical History, and Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is a past president of the American Society for Environmental History, the recipient of many prestigious fellowships and awards, and the director of two documentary films, which we'll hear a bit about in the conversation to come. He has written and edited a number of influential books on the history of science, visual and material culture, and environmental health, including Breathing Space, How Allergies Shape Our Lives and Landscapes. And he's here to talk about his latest book. It's called Empire of Rubber, Firestone's Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia. It comes out today from the New Press, and it is spectacular. Dr. Mittman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. It's a real pleasure. Readers of your earlier work will certainly recognize that this is your book as soon as they start digging in. But in its broadest strokes, it looks like a departure. You're engaging as, as it does with the history of West Africa and foreign policy and capitalism. How did you come to write a book about Firestone in Liberia? Yeah, it's been a long journey, almost 20 <laughs> years, 20 years, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, I, well, I first came, I got interested because I was asked to serve as a scholar consultant on a film that was going to be made about the roots of international conservation and colonialism. And the people making this film had um, footage from three different expeditions that a uh, Boston Brahmin and um, Harvard primatologist Harold Coolidge was on. And one of these uh, was of a Harvard medical expedition to Liberia in 1926 when when Coolidge was uh, quite a young man, actually had just um, graduated from Harvard. And uh, we didn't really know what this expedition was about, um, or the people that were working on this film didn't know what it was about. And I got quite intrigued by it. Um, And the film never saw the light of day, but I really got interested in this, uh, this expedition footage and why was Harvard in Liberia? What was this? They were doing this complete biological and medical survey. 
And in the two-volume work that was published of the expedition, there's this dedication to Harvey Firestone in it. And so that tipped me off. And uh, um, it turned out that uh, they were there as guests of uh, Firestone Plantations Company. And um, although Firestone didn't directly support them financially, they paved a lot of the way for their travels through Liberia and then gave the money to publish the, the expedition volume. So I got quite interested in what role American science and medicine was playing in the in the global expansion of American corporations in the early 20th century, um, and in this case specifically with with Firestone. Um, Firestone denied me access to their archives, which had been housed at the University of Akron, as they had all historians before me, um, and so that meant that I had to take a very circuitous route in in researching this project and ended up spending a lot of time in Liberia. And what I thought was initially going to be about uh, a story about um, American biomedicine in Liberia turned out to be a story about Firestone. And, and, you know, if you think about the the early decades of the 20th century and, and, you know, corporate capitalism, it makes sense that Firestone like Ford wanted rubber, right? And it's, it's, this is vertical integration, classic kind of high school history uh, story. But uh, but why did Firestone light upon Liberia? You know, why not someplace that the U.S. already controlled, like the Philippines? Yeah, interesting question. I uh, Firestone certainly did not think about Liberia at the beginning. You know, I think we need to step back and think a little bit about the geopolitics of rubber in this time period in the 19-teens and 20s. Um, by the by, the teens plantation rubber had displaced Amazonian rubber um, in supplying the U.S.'s growing appetite for rubber. And and in the early 1920s, the U.S. owned 80 percent of the automobiles in the world, consumed 75 percent of the rubber supply, but only one percent uh, grew under U.S. flag. And uh, Britain had a monopoly on the global supply. Um, as well as the Dutch. Um, so the major plantation areas uh, for rubber were in the British Malay and, and the Dutch East Indies. Um, and Firestone became incensed about uh, this monopoly that uh, Britain had, and he himself was pushing for vertical integration of his company and launches a public campaign in the U.S. for the U.S. to produce its own rubber. Uh, he was a mover and shaker in the Republican Party. Um, he was able to get Congress to appropriate $500,000 for American experts to travel throughout the world to find where would be a suitable place to grow uh, rubber that not only in terms of the climatic and soil conditions, but in a country that would be friendly to American interests. And as you said, you know, the obvious place of that would be the Philippines, although who knew, you know, whether they'd be friendly or not was another <laughs> question. Uh, uh, and uh, much to his dismay, Firestone, uh, you know, could not get the uh, use his power and influence to get the Liberian legislature, or the Philippine legislature, my uh, sorry, to um, 
loosen up its land laws so that you know foreigners could not hold more than twenty five acres of twenty five hundred acres of land, and that just wasn't going to work in terms of growing rubber. Um, at the time when he was a when he was starting to look elsewhere and about to give up um, on on the Philippines. Um, Solomon Porter Hood, who was the U.S. minister to Liberia, uh, sent Firestone a letter um, alerting him to the fact that there was an abandoned um, British rubber plantation in Liberia and that Liberia might in fact be a conducive place to grow rubber. And that tipped Firestone off. He never gave Hood credit um, for that insight. Um but um, within weeks, he had sent one of his agents there to um, explore the site. And so that's the creation story of what would become the Firestone Plantations. And, and that word plantation is an important one in, in, in this book and in your work. And you've, you've actually been part of a number of scholars who have really pushed us to think about the role of the plantation in global environmental change you know, writ large. Um, and you write in the book that the history of Liberia is one intertwined with the history of the plantation in all its forms and meanings, and that that plural the plural kind of vision of the, of the plantation, I think, is really helpful. Um, you know, I'm I'm here in New England, and we have Plymouth Plantation, and I think Rhode Island is still you know has the name plantation in its name of its state. And then, of course, for most Americans, it brings to mind antebellum plantations in the South. And then Firestone, you know, self consciously uses that word plantation at the time. So, how do these different valences of the word play out in Liberia? Yeah, that's a big question, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as you allude to. Um, you know, the original meaning of the word plantation meant to plant a colony, okay? So Massachusetts Bay Colony, for example, as you mentioned, was granted a royal charter to establish a plantation in the New World. Um, and so the, that initial meaning meant colonization. Um, now, we don't often think of that today. I think, you know, when we think about the plantation, we think about the 18th century, new meanings of the plantation built on chattel slavery, which were flourishing in the Atlantic world. But it's in, in both senses of that word plantation, both as a colony and as a particular formation of capital land and enslaved labor for the production of commodities and wealth that shapes Liberia's history. So, you know, uh, many listeners may, you know, be familiar with um, the establishment of the American Colonization Society, uh, which was a group of prominent white politicians, religious leaders, and, and, and businessmen, uh, both uh, some of whom were abolitionists, many of whom were slaveholders. Um, it was established in 1816, so it was a, a, a kind of a private group. Um, but what united them was a, a fear of the perceived threat that they believed free blacks posed to this growing white settler nation, which was profiting on the sweat, toil, and suffering of enslaved people of African descent. And the solution that they came up with was, well, let's establish a colony on the west coast of Africa for free blacks and emancipated slaves on condition of their emigration back to Africa. So those settlers who either by a choice or in exchange for freedom chose to emigrate to West Africa, when they arrived in, in the 1820s, they, they found a region already inhabited by people of um, Mel, Mande, and Kwa speaking groups. Um, 
And then in 1847, those settlers from the U.S. and later uh, the West Indies uh, declared the area an independent sovereign republic. It was to be a home in, in in the Constitution. It says it's to be a home for dispersed and oppressed children of Africa. Slavery and traffic in slaves was prohibited and none but people of African descent could be citizens. So the very creation of Liberia as a free black republic stood in defiance of exploitive labor and the racialized violence of the plantation. At the same time, it was established as a kind of settler colony. So it's in that sense of both meanings of plantation that um, we can understand Liberia's history. Thank you. You've titled the third chapter of the book, Missionaries of Capital. And I'd like to deal with both halves of that question, uh, one, uh, that, uh, that phrase, one at a time. Um, and let's start with missionaries. In, in what way did Firestone cast the enterprise as missionary work? Yeah, you know, Firestone promoted his venture as one of beneficence um, that would improve um, the lives of Liberian people through this uh, importation of American science, medicine, and industry. Um, this was a, a period of... Uh, what we refer to as welfare capitalism, um, very paternalistic in its orientation towards labors. And um, so as, as part of the plantations that were established, um, Firestone provided free medical care to workers, uh, provided housing, uh, provided um, subsidized food, um, and uh, also help build infrastructure, so many roads and so forth. Um, and it was in that context that, you know, he argued that this was not just about profit, right, but that this was really about, it was a, it was a kind of project of uplift. It was a, but it was a very paternalistic view that only through the enlightened knowledge of white Western experts that Liberia could develop its economy and 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 rightfully earn its place among you know Western developed nations. So it's in this sense of beneficence and you know and particularly um, he used medical humanitarianism a lot in in trying to sell the plantations that you know and partly you know and so the Harvard Medical Expedition right becomes a great PR tool for him by saying, look, you know, here we are, we're helping, you know, improve the health of Liberians, you know, by these, you know, top medical experts from Harvard and so forth. Um, And, you know, to this day, um, uh, Firestone in Liberia um, sells itself on, on that, those kind of medical humanitarianism initiatives. And now let's talk talk about the capital piece of this. Um, One of the major preconditions of of Firestone's investment in in production in in Liberia is this $5 million loan to the Liberian state that the government is not requesting and and pushes back on um, initially. And why why is that that, that piece of the central to Firestone's plans? Yeah, you know, um, the the agreements for up, to 1 million acres of land, which was what the the concession was uh, for 99 years. So Firestone was granted access for 1 million, up to 1 million acres of land over the course of 99 years um, at a rate of uh, tax rate of six cents per acre. Um, That's all that was originally included in the original agreement. Um, The the Liberian government um, also prevented 
um, the importation of, of labor other than, um, I think it was 2,500 2, uh, people could come largely would be, you know, um, uh, Western experts and, 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 and manage and management. Um, so they, so they were preventing importation of, of, of labor as well. But at the very final hour of, of these agreements, Firestone slipped in this, um, clause for a $5 million loan, um, it was from the Finance Corporation of America. And at the time, no one knew who the Finance Corporation of America was, but it was a loan for 7% interest over 40 years. Um, Liberia had been in debt um, to uh, Great Britain, the U.S., um, and, and, a, and a few other nations um, at the time. And, and it, it got into this... Um, never-ending cycle of debt servitude. Um, and uh, Firestone saw this as an opportunity to really gain control over Liberia because one of the conditions of, 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 the, of the loan was that to service the loan, um, they would appoint American financial advisors that would basically have control over the customs and revenues of Liberia's economy. So it would enable Firestone to have economic control over the country in a place where they had no right to own land, right? Um, they were there really as guests of the Liberian government. Um, and that made Firestone, Harry Firestone, very nervous. And he wanted to have some assurances that he could protect his capital investment. Um, it would later be discovered um, that the Finance Corporation of America was Firestone. Um, so, uh, you know, it was a particularly egregious form of economic domination. Once the papers are signed in, in the late 1920s, you know, it's, things are off and running, but uh, almost immediately the Firestone plantations run into a number of obstacles. Um, what, were, what were some of those obstacles and how did, how did the company respond? Yeah, so there there were a number of obstacles. Uh, you know, one was just getting access to land um, because um, in West Africa, um, in particularly in, in in the rural areas, uh, land is is not this sense of private property ownership of land. You know, this Western concept of private property. Um, is not pervasive throughout West Africa. Um, there, one has much more of a customary relationship to, to land tenure. So land is held in common. Um, and the, the, the initial agreements um, prevented Firestone for, from um, alienated, alienating tribal reserves of, of land. But the Liberian government um, really ran roughshod over over those agreements, and so Firestone was constantly um, in land disputes um, uh, with local peoples um, over whose land that was, um, as well as with the Liberian government. Um, so land conflicts were were one kind of thorn in Liberia's uh, thorn in, in Firestone's side. Um, the other significant problem was that. 
Firestone boasted that he was going to be able to secure 300,000 laborers to work this to work these plantations. So it was 20% of the population, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah exactly. Um, and, um, you know, he never came close to that. I mean, in, in their heyday, the, the, the plantations had 30,000 laborers. Um, but he grossly um, underestimated the availability he, he gross, grossly underestimated the ability of him to be able to secure labor to work the plantations because um, the, the Liberian government itself used um, conscripted labor for public works projects. So they would conscript um, Liberian men to help build roads. Um, they also were in this um, export labor scheme where they were sending um, workers to work the um, plantations on Fernando Po, a, a Spanish colony um, in the Gulf of Guinea. Um, and so a lot of the labor uh, was already spoken for and, and taken. And um, in 1928-29, uh, um, the U.S. State Department um begins to investigate forced labor and alleged uh, slavery in, in Liberia, begins an investigation of forced labor in, in Liberia. Um, we ha- it's, it's pretty clear that Firestone was, was behind a lot of this. Um, and, there, and it led to a League of Nations investigation into slavery and forced labor in Liberia that... Um, went on um, for almost five years. Um, uh, and in the end, uh, Edwin Barclay, who became president of Liberia after um, Charles Dunbar Burgess King had uh, resigned as a result of, of these allegations, um, Edwin, uh, Edwin Barclay, um, who was a master diplomat and politician, um, was able to thwart Firestone from using this as a way of making Liberia become an American protectorate because Firestone really was trying to use this international dis- labor dispute um, as a way of securing American control over Liberia. Um, but he was never successful in doing so, um, largely because, as I said, Barclay was just a, a really masterful diplomat and politician. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... 
Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Firestone's trying to get Hoover to send a battleship at one point, right? He just wants to have some sort of strong assertion of, of control there. Um, early in the book, you, you describe the project as a history of America through the lens of Firestone and Liberia. And I'd say it also, it also functions as a history of African-American history uh, through the lens, this lens too. And, and the book features a really rich and deep cast of black American figures, some well-known, some very well-known, and then many not. Um, and, you know, each of their stories is completely engrossing in your telling. Um, and these intellectuals and diplomats and journalists, they were divided on the promise of Firestone's vision for Liberia. Could you share some of their perspectives? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, many people would, are, would probably be surprised to learn that actually W.E.B. Du Bois was initially supportive of the Firestone experiment in Liberia. Um, du Bois went to Liberia on his first trip to Africa um, He um, to be there um, as, as part of the American delegation for um, the inauguration of Charles Dunbar Burgess King in his second term as as Liberian president, uh, Du Bois went there in in um, December of 1923 and and was there for the inauguration in, in January of 1924. And he visited this this British rubber plantation, this abandoned British rubber plantation, the Mount Barkley plantation, uh, was a friend of Solomon Porter Hood, and and. Um, you know, wrote to Harvey Firestone Sr. and said, you know, you have an opportunity here um, like no other. And that if you if you build up this this plantation, um, this industrial plantation, in a way that um, doesn't hold to the color line and uses this as an opportunity um, for education and training, of black expertise and and black management, and that this is controlled and and run by um, black managers and laborers, um, you know this is a real opportunity to create something of mutual prosperity the world has never seen. Of course, Firestone didn't heed his advice, and um, he completely relied on white management and expertise, ended up building this Jim Crow enclave in Liberia, and Du Bois would, within 10 years, become one of Firestone's greatest critics. Um, It was actually uh, Du Bois who publicly exposed that the loan from the Finance Corporation of America was, was... that of Firestone. Um, uh, he wrote a, a, a scathing uh, critique in 1933 um, uh, in Foreign Affairs, uh, really denouncing uh, the Firestone experiment in Liberia. But others, um, you know, people like um, Lester, Lester Walton, a very prominent um, African-American journalist, um, in the in the 1920s and 30s, who helped get the black vote out for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, his close friend Claude Barnett, who founded the Associated Negro Press, were both um, very much champions of of Firestone uh, for for some time, uh, believing that um, American business uh, and American capital and 
and they weren't so concerned that it was white American capital, um, could really uh, help with Liberia's economic development. Um, one of uh, there's two heroes in the book, in in my view, they're heroes. <laughs> <laughs> One is uh, a man by the name of George Brown, um, who amazing individual. He he goes to Howard in in, in the late teens and early twenties, becomes an understudy to um, Carter Woodson, who was really pioneering in in the development of African American history. Um, and Brown goes to get his goes off to get his PhD at the London School of Economics um, and Economic um, Anthropology. And he's a good friend of Paul Robeson. And, and, and Paul Robeson helps fund Brown to, do, to go to Liberia um, and to do a study that I regard as really a brilliant environmental and economic history of Liberia. Um, and one of the things that Brown comes to understand is the importance of land in Liberia. And, and he spends a lot of time um, in rural parts of area with um, particular indigenous groups, particularly uh, the Vai and the Gola, um, and comes to understand the exchange economies at work um, in rural agriculture among Liberia's indigenous peoples. Um, and he becomes a great critic of Firestone uh, because he, he sees how devastating these concessions, these land concessions will be um, in terms of, of the, the livelihood and culture of Liberia's uh, interior. You know, one one last person I I just like to to highlight um, is 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 an, and another hero in the book is 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 Frank Pinder, um, who was uh, trained at uh, Florida A M Agricultural and Mechanical University um, in the nineteen thirties. Worked for the Farm Security Administration, helping black farmers in the rural South um, develop markets, develop agricultural cooperatives. And um, in the 1940s, becomes part of a U.S. economic mission to Liberia and works very hard at developing markets for smallholder farmers in Liberia and who is very respectful of West African agricultural traditions. And he too is someone um, very opposed to the one crop plantation economy that Firestone was was really planting in Liberia and tries to, uh, and is quite successful um, in develop, helping Liberia develop uh, much more diversified agricultural products um, in defiance of Firestone that really, um, you know, was focused on rubber as the be-all and end-all of, of Liberia's economy. Thanks. And when we encounter both of these characters in the book, you know, kind of quite a ways in, it's immediately clear the influence they had on you and you're thinking about the project and, and how land is structuring life in, in Liberia. And I haven't really given you a chance to, to reveal the extent to which this is an environmental history 
as well as everything else. And so I wonder if you could just say a bit about what was life like on these plantations and what, what was this work like and what was the kind of the intimate relationship between humans and, and the natural world? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, it, it was essentially a, a Jim Crow enclave in a sovereign black Republic. Um, and, uh, so housing and healthcare were segregated. Um, uh, so very different housing conditions and, uh, medical care conditions for white management. There were about 125 to 150 white managers, uh, largely from the U S uh, Firestone actually liked to recruit, um, people from, um, Midwestern universities, people like coming from the University of Wisconsin and, and other places, state schools. Um, and then about 30,000, you know, in the in the late 40s, early 50s, about 30,000 um, uh, Liberian laborers, the majority of whom were tappers. Um, and at that time, uh, the, the quota was th- uh, 300 trees a day that a tapper would have to tap. Um, and... Firestone classified tappers as unskilled labor. Uh, in 1950, they were getting 18 cents a day. Um, but in fact, it's very, very skilled labor um, because it, it really depends on a very precise cut into the tree that um, stimulates lay, this, this latex to flow. And so it's a bit like um, uh, for those you know, in New England, it would be like a bit like um, tapping maple syrup, although you don't go nearly as deep in into the tree. Um, very, very labor intensive, um, uh, very brutal in terms of the conditions um, that the they would have to carry these um, two six gallon pails balanced over their soldiers for miles to the collecting stations. Um, one of the really important chemical compounds, we t- we think of rubber as natural, you know, uh, at least in terms of tapping rubber, but an important chemical compound was ammonia, which keeps latex in a liquid state and, and liquid latex is, is the most highly valued form. So tappers would have to carry ammonia with them each day, dip it into and put it into the cop. Sometimes it would spill. Some workers would go blind. Um, it could affect numb their fingers over time and so forth. So there, you know, it's a, it's a, what I refer to in the book as this industrial ecology that's created on the plantations, um, that, differentially affects lives. Yeah. And I think uh, you say something along the lines of like, there's nothing natural about the production of natural <laughs> of latex, natural rubber here. Um, during the war, World War II, you know, th- you, you talk about these, these relations between, um, between classes of, of people and also between humans and, and non-human ecologies as getting locked in and, and production really ramps up and there's lots of agricultural experiments and stuff. And then after, after the war, um, you know, the plantations are humming along. But I wonder how, how did anti-colonial movements in, on the continent and then black freedom struggles back in the United States, how did they affect Firestone's operations? Yeah, so we, we've, we see um, in 1950 is, is the first major um, labor unrest and strike on the plantations. Um, and the 1950s and into the early 60s are periods of, of increasing labor strife and struggles on, on the plantations. You know, I think partly of that um, 
through people's awareness of, you know, of what was happening elsewhere. Um, the, the Jim Crow enclave that, that Firestone established also became an embarrassment to the U.S. State Department. So um, Edward Dudley, who was ambassador to Liberia in 1949, uh, had come there after working with the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, um, beside Thurgood Marshall, um, became very critical of Firestone transferring Jim Crow policies to Liberia. His his wife um, had uh, difficulty um, getting served at the um, Firestone Plantation store, um, you know, because she was black, um, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it got uh, Firestone uh, prevented white workers from marrying Liberian women. Um, it, it got so bad that in 1958, um, President Tubman and the Liberian legislature had to pass an anti-segregation law Um in Liberia, which, you know, in, here you are in a, a sovereign black republic where whites can neither own land or be citizens, and you have to, pla- you have to pass an anti-segregation law to prevent these American corporations from practicing Jim Crow um, on these concession areas. The, the final chapter closes in 1963 with, with the simultaneous retirement of, of Harvey Firestone Jr., who had inherited the business from his father, CEO ship from his father, and the death of Du Bois. And you kind of use that as a moment to, to bookend the story. In the epilogue, you, you take it up, you take it up, and of course, Firestone remains um, a corporation there until it gets bought out. Um, but, but, uh, um, and you take it down to the present and your own observations from your time in Liberia. And I wonder if you could tell us more about your travels there and how your time in Liberia shaped your scholarship. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, as an environmental historian, I, you know, I had always been suspicious of the claim that you needed to spend time in the place to write about its history. You know, it's like, what, you know, what is being in, you know, New York City now tell us about, you know, New York City 100 years ago, you know, and, yeah. and so forth. So I was always a little dubious about that. Um, uh, but I, I've changed my opinion about that now, um, having spent so much time in Liberia and, and so much of what I came to understand about the importance of land, uh, livelihoods in Liberia, and the way in which Firestone impacted them, I could have never learned from just immersing myself in the archive that I, you know, I spent, we um, made a film, The Land Beneath Our Feet, on history, memory, and land rights in Liberia, and spent four years uh, retracing parts of the itinerary of that Harvard medical expedition, going to places where they had been with the footage and photographs and, and speaking to elders and, and other people about, you know, memories of, uh, of the past and, you know, what, what was the meaning of Firestone for today? And, you know, and, and one of the things I really came to understand was the importance of land and, and, um, and how much um, Firestone, as they say in Liberia, uh, plated, plated the mat for this new wave of land concessions in Liberia in, in 2018, um, 50% of land in Liberia had been sold off for long-term leases to foreign concessions, largely for oil palm, iron ore, um, and, 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 um, other concessions. And, and that's just had a huge, you know, continues to have a huge impact on people's lives and livelihoods. 
Thank you so much. And I hope that the, the months ahead, um, you're, all your time is gobbled up by sharing this book with audiences around the country, around the world. Um, but I, when you get a chance to get back to your laptop and, and have some time to write, I believe your next book is already under contract, if, I, if I'm wrong. Um, could you give us a little sneak peek? Are you ready to do that? Sure. I mean, I am, I'm actually starting a, um, a five-year project um, supported by um, the European Research Commission um, on the history and ecology of emerging infectious diseases and natural resource extraction um, in the Upper Ghanaian rainforest of, of Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone. And, you know, one of the things we're, we're really interested in, in understanding is, is how did landscape change, how has landscape change and transformation on things like plantations, mining regions, um, deforested areas, um, shaped, if at all, um, the, the rise of emerging infectious diseases. So in the book, for example, I talk about um, the ways in which this industrial, these industrial ecologies that were built on the plantations were conducive for the spread of certain diseases like onchocerciasis, known or river blindness, because it created habitat conditions conducive for um, the vector of, the, of this um, roundworm parasite, this biting black fly. Um, and then with all these people gathered in particular areas, you had, you know, a, a kind of population that could become infected with, with this um, roundworm um, onchocerciasis. Um, in some areas of the plantations, uh, by the 1980s, um, 80% of laborers were infected um, with this parasite. Um, and and so it, you know, it's it's just a, a kind of gives you a little inkling of the ways in which um, landscape change and transformation on these industrial scales um, created possibilities um, for for new kinds of diseases to thrive. Um, and so that's what we're going to be exploring. Wow, that's so exciting! The book again is Empire of Rubber: Firestones Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia. Its author, my guest, is Greg Mittman. Its publisher is The New Press, and it comes out today. Go get your copy now. Greg, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciated talking with you.